Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I want to welcome you to the first podcast of my 17th year of podcasting from here in the Psychedelic Salon. Originally, uh, I planned on posting this yesterday, making it the last podcast of my 16th year. But, alas, my highly refined ability to procrastinate took hold yesterday, so here we are today, as my dad used to say, a day late and a dollar short. Well, what I want to play for you right now is a recording from last Monday's live salon. Our guests were Jennifer Stell and Alex Karasik, who are involved with a Massachusetts organization called the Bay Staters for Natural Medicine. As you'll hear in just a moment, what I find unique about this group is not only have they convinced the city councils of three cities in their state to decriminalize psychedelic substances, but their group has only been around since last October. That's right, in October of 2020 they came together online and since then they've been making big news in the war on drugs. Well after listening to everything that they've accomplished already and how they have done it in such a short time and during the pandemic at that, well I'm hoping that you'll be inspired to get involved yourself. If you live in Massachusetts you can join their group. Or, if you live elsewhere, you can get something like this going in your own hometown. Today, uh, well, we seem to have a lot of momentum building to uh, bring an end to the war on drugs. So, don't wait for somebody else to do your part. Right now, today, is the time for you to stand up and be counted. We really need your help. Here now is a recording of last Monday's conversation in the Psychedelic Salon. What, I, what I'd like to do is to uh, kind of get a, a little input from, from you, Alex, about uh, what the, the Bay Staters is all about and how you guys are, are going about uh, doing your, uh, uh, for, you know, going after your objective. And then we'll, we'll maybe open up for some questions and uh, take it from there. So, and, then, and then what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, clean out any uh, you know, gaps where there's people pausing and stuff like that. And I'll, I'll podcast it to the larger audience. So uh, any uh, links that you have or, or ways that people can get in touch with you or support your work or, or just find out more about how they can reproduce what you're doing, uh, you know, stuff like that, uh, you can send me offline and I'll, I'll put that all in the program notes uh, what will go out tomorrow. And, and by the way, tomorrow <coughs> is sort of an auspicious day for us here in the salon. Uh, your podcast that I put out of, of tonight's uh, conversation will be the last podcast of the 16th year of podcasting. So uh, it's the last day of my 16th year. Uh, the next day is uh, St. Patrick's Day is the anniversary of the beginning of the 17th year of podcasting. So uh, very auspicious that we're able to talk about uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, and that's bringing uh, an end to this insane war on people who use drugs that aren't approved by a pharmaceutical company, you know? Yep, yep. Uh, actually, but Jennifer... Uh, joined as well. She she was the other person I invited from Bay Sitter, so uh, she's gonna follow up as well. So okay, good. So so tell us about how how did your organization get started? Is what like 2017 or something you guys started, or did I get that wrong? Um, no, it, it's a fairly new organization. Uh, we're, we're not even uh, 
six months old, but we've accomplished a lot in a very short time. Um, there's a lot of changes going on in the state of Massachusetts right now. And to be honest, we, we our organization, uh, Base Staters for Natural Medicine, has been at the forefront of a lot of really big changes in the um, legal aspect of uh, psychedelics. We have successfully decriminalized or, or been one of the leaders of decriminalizing um, ethnogenic plants in uh, three towns now. And we're looking to target Boston next. And after Boston, we believe a lot of other places will be following suit after. Um, so we see that as part of a larger strategy to ultimately decriminalize and then eventually legalize um, these plants and medicines throughout the entire state. So we've um, been able to decriminalize in the first town, which is the hometown of uh, myself at the moment. And Jen was uh, part of this with me where we talked to the key members of uh, the city council and did some grassroots organization uh, reaching out to all of those city council members. And then there was a city council vote in which uh, Jen and I were the two uh, speakers. And uh, Somerville was the first town in Massachusetts to decriminalize uh, psychedelics. And we're super proud of that. Cambridge, Massachusetts followed after that. And uh, Northampton followed after that. So Cambridge is where Harvard University is, where Timothy Leary and the Harvard Psychedelic Club all got started. And um, there's, there's a lot of psychedelic history that comes from Massachusetts that we're super proud of. And we saw what was going on in other parts of the country and uh, acted very quickly. And we um, were led by a great uh, leader, James Davis, who uh, also was a Somerville resident. He's originally from Kansas, but um, he just started this group on social media. And a lot of people have joined. It's We're over a thousand people following the social media accounts, at least at the moment. And we've got dozens of people showing up regularly to meetings. So we're super effective. We're, we're moving very quickly. We know how to uh, talk to these local lawmakers and how to get stuff done and get this legislation passed uh, at, at a really quick rate. And it's it's been quite a whirlwind and we only see things going up once Boston itself uh, makes this change. And right now we're talking, trying to reach out to city councilors there. Uh, again, we, we think that's going to mean big, big changes for the rest of the state. So we're super proud of the work we've done so far. And we only see things going, continuing to go in a more positive direction. Also, so um, for, for a young organization, you guys have really made some, some amazing headway. So let's, let's rewind a bit. Now, he's, this all started with a social media post. How, how did you guys come together? How did you organize? Actually, yeah. I can answer that. Um, so there's a kid named Chi on LinkedIn who's part of the decriminalized nature movement um, across the country. And he had reached out to James and myself and asked if we would be interested in starting this grassroots movement. Um, quite frankly, I never even used LinkedIn that much, so I was kind of skeptical at first. Um, and then James had reached out to me, and um, we talked about, you know, why we thought this is something that needs to happen. Um, and from there, we there was four other people that uh, Chia gotten 
connected with us and we just started making phone calls um, and, and deciding where do we want to be, what kind of organization do we want to be, what kind of group of people do we want to have. Um, and after that, we went on social media, started asking for help. Uh, people like Alex joined up and, and were just hit the ground running and have been amazing assets to our movement. Um, and from there, we've just continued to grow. Now, now, did this begin before the pandemic? No, we started in October. Oh, wow. 2020. Hey. Mike, you had a question? I, you're... I was wondering what social media platforms work best for you. Um, I think right now Instagram is one that we get the most um, feedback from, but we are also on um, Facebook as well. Um, but I, I think we get the most interaction from people on Instagram. Now, 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 Alex said you guys on social on Facebook, maybe it is you have like a thousand people. How how do you how do you organize on a local basis to, when you uh, want to do something like go to Somerville or whatever uh, uh, Cambridge or whatever? Uh, you know, how how do you get the on the ground people organized? Yeah, well, um, we. We do everything virtually because of the moment in time that we're in. And we try to regularly have action hour meetings in which we have stated goals and break down who's going to do what. And a lot of it's pretty straightforward at, at this point after we've done it a few times now. Um, we know which city councilors to reach out to who uh, we've built relationships with in some of these places. And um, our local members in those towns are the key people when it comes to the individual cities and towns. So uh, Jen, James, the founder and myself are from Somerville. So that was a very natural place for us to start. We have Boston members now who are gonna be taking that on in a similar way in Boston next. So um, the people who are living in those towns are the people who can be most effective in terms of reaching out to these local politicians. And, um, in a lot of ways, that, that's just what it comes down to. We, we write, uh, bombard them with letters, we contact them as much as we can, and we find that there's usually um, a couple people on the council who are very enthusiastic, and then uh, a, lot of, a lot of the rest of the councils tend to follow uh, their lead. So it becomes, uh, it becomes a very organic thing after a while with, with how much we're expanding. Like there's members of our group who go very far out to Western Massachusetts and Central Massachusetts as well. So um, that's that's the effective strategy we've been doing that that works. Are, are you having in-person meetings with the city councils and the council members, or, or is this all virtual? For the most part, it's it's been all virtual. Uh, there's there's been a couple of meetings in person, but it's really not been that necessary so far. And it's made things go quicker as well. So it's it's really been to our advantage in a few ways. That that was my guess. Is I was thinking that that you're more likely to get a meeting with somebody uh, virtually right now in this situation than when you used to go. I used to try to get to talk with council members and reps, and yeah, it's impossible to get a meeting with them. So uh, this yeah. may be a, a, a time to, to uh, get ahead. As, as Jennifer was saying, it might be a perfect time to start uh, really getting more active about the whole thing. Yep, yep. Uh, it's, it's strange. This has 
one area of our lives where uh, things have been super productive at a very quick rate when nothing else in the world seems to be going like that. So now, do, do you have a, 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 a protocol or a pattern that you approach Congress or representatives with council people with and, and uh, or is it just kind of, you know, just make it up as you go along kind of thing? So usually um, we have people reach out. Um, we have what's called action hours. And in that action hour, we all introduce ourselves. There's usually about between six and 10 of us on a call at a time. Um, and it's people that can make it for that specific time. We do them four times a month. And um, we ask people to reach out to their local representatives. And with that, we send usually a template um, that, it has like what we want to say. We send a flyer with some information on it, um, as well as the, the personal part, which is your story. So you you write like an elevator pitch of your story, and then the stuff that we send you goes underneath it, and then the flyer gets attached. So they're pretty uniform, except for the stories are, are all individualized. So when we send the, this information, not only are they getting hard information of why you know legalizing substances um is is a necessity in our state but also um why it's important to the individual that's writing the letter you know i realize you guys have more than your hands full but you've been so successful in such a short period of time are, are you inviting people uh to come to these uh these gatherings online gatherings from out of your state or is this strictly massachusetts well anyone's welcome to join but uh, the focus really is on people from Massachusetts because that's who our most um, successful advocates have been. And we see that as how it will continue to be. If, if anyone's ever interested in just seeing how one of these action meetings work and, and how we do, we're totally open to that. But in terms of what one could effectively do with the grass work, uh, grass, grassroots work we do, it is a local person who is most effective in talking to a local politician and saying these are our needs as, as uh, I was, I was thinking of more, more along the lines of you guys inspiring other people and letting them see a copy of your templates, things like that, that uh, uh, other communities could try to, to replicate it without you, you know, diverting any of your bandwidth to that. But uh, if they just sat in, kept their mouth shut and got a copy of a template and, and, and learned, I think that would be very valuable if they could do that. We have, we, we've had a couple of meetings well, where there were people from other states that had joined just to see how it is that we run our meetings and um, get, you know, an idea of the kind of material that we're sending out and how we send it out. Um, so it's, anybody's welcome to join, especially if you want to do that. We're all for it because we believe that this is something that should be happening across the country. Um, and decriminalized nature actually is a, has a uh, countrywide um following and they have different chapters um all throughout each state so um we're we're kind of partnered up with them uh as well so we do invite people to come if they want because we'd love to be a part of their movement as well yeah you 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 have had such such a success in a short time and work where alex really caught my attention when he got a hold of me to uh see if we could start spreading the word more about this is that uh, I, I, your approach to start with city councils, uh, I, I hadn't seen anybody doing that before. Everybody I know of has been going right to the state legislature, you know, and, and uh, lobbying them. 
And, you know, which seems like, well, that's what you do if you want the state to change. But if you get all this, the cities, major cities changing, you know, the state legislatures, you know, uh, there go my people. Let me get out in front and lead them, you know. <laughs> so uh, I think that's a brilliant approach. And obviously it seems to have some, uh, some it's working. Yeah, as a group, we're working out right now if we want to pursue that uh, state level uh, bill to propose uh, for for a um, a vote for the statewide um, ballot initiative. But we're having so much success with the way we're approaching it at the moment. At, we're kind of debating amongst ourselves if we should go that route because what what we're doing works, and if in a year or two we're at 90 percent of uh local townships uh do going the path that we've seen somerville and cambridge and northampton going and hopefully boston soon if most of the state is already on board and it's not a statewide thing yet um there might be better places for us to put our resources at that point because it might be effectively uh successful at a statewide level even though it's not officially there yet so we're, we're working that out and seeing uh, if there's anything bigger picture uh, plans we might want to make for two years or so from now. And it's really exciting to just even be thinking about things on that scale. Are there concerns about uh, if some jurisdictions that you put the <clears throat> put it to a ballot measure, it fails there being a split in different jurisdictions and how that would um, how that would play out in your goals for statewide legalization? Or, I'm sorry, uh, statewide decrim. Yeah, I mean, it's possible that you go that route and then it, it doesn't pass uh, where right now the, there's momentum and we're seeing that there, there's the culture of the different cities kind of almost getting jealous of each other and wanting to uh, keep up with one another. So we're finding that works really well. And it is a lot of work. You need 80,000 signatures uh, to get something on the ballot. And it's not that we don't think we can do that. It's just... You also need, uh, it's about a $10 million budget in the past we've seen as well. And we um, are a very grassroots organization and those things kind of do seem a little lofty at the moment. They, I'm sure we can get there, but what we're doing works at the moment. So we're kind of um, pretty comfortable with, with the way things are going and, and the path that we've been taking. So yeah, we're, we're satisfied at the moment. Yeah, it seems to me that if, if uh, you know, say, say the majority of the population of the state via the cities have voted for that, have gone in favor of that, that some, some uh, aspiring politician that wants to be a governor, a uh, young politician is going to jump on that bandwagon and, and lead that charge. Because, uh, you know, if you get the overwhelming majority, I think like 65% of the whole U.S. is in favor of, of decrim right now. So, uh, you know, it's just going to get a, a courageous politician with a, <laughs> looking for a career ahead to jump on this bandwagon. But I think you guys are doing all the heavy lifting and uh, upfront work because uh, it, it is a grassroots movement. And fortunately, we've, we're, it's a generational issue as well. And and so many more young uh, people are moving into the FDA and DEA and and, uh, and politics that uh, you know that that may, they're not all drug users, but they they all have friends and families that are. And now so many young people have grandparents that are using medical marijuana. That I think that that the the stigma has uh, shifted a little bit, or a lot actually. 
Hey, where, yeah. where's law enforcement um, in, in, with, with your relationship? Uh, do you guys have relationship with local law enforcement? How has law enforcement interacted with the, um, the different uh, cities where you've succeeded? They've been uh, fairly cooperative. I'm not sure exactly if we've directly been in touch with them, but I can tell you in Somerville, like the, the mayor um, has a close relationship with them and the, the essence of the atmosphere of decriminalizing, which we is what we officially have done is uh, an understanding that this is the bottom of your priority list. And from everything we've heard, there's, there's no backlash. There's, there's no, issues uh somerville and cambridge are fairly liberal open-minded places and i they're also very condensed somerville is the 16th or 14th most condensed city in america so our local law enforcement do have issues to deal with and it, it does seem reasonable i think that this shouldn't be at the top of their priority even if uh even for the individual members of law enforcement involved that I, I think if I had to guess, most of them are oh, just fine with what we've done so far. Charles, uh, in Oregon, uh, how has the decrim already come in now for, for psychedelics the first year that it was voted? And, yeah, and how has it been accepted uh, by the, the state so far? Well, I'm not a real maven on this issue, but I mean, I haven't really seen any, um, you know, any chatter or issues in local community uh, about anything adverse occurring. What was the vote? How what percentage of people voted in favor of that uh, amendment or whatever? Well, like I said, I'm not a maven on the issue, but I mean, it, it, it did pass, um, you know, and my understanding is that there was broad public support both for um decrim and for um the the psilocybin services initiative here so that's that's uh you know the whole country i think is is wising up to the 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 proposition that we're spending an awful lot of money keeping people in jail and arresting them and taking their property away uh when we got other things we could spending money on like fixing our roads and schools and et cetera. Right now, schools are going to have to be rebuilt in some structure for uh, uh, ventilation and things like that, filtering out the air. So, you know, there's a lot of better ways to spend our money than uh, putting up people uh, that are smoking pot. Uh, now, I'm not, I'm not saying that the method, meth isn't a big problem and that we don't have drug problems, but I'm saying that, uh, you know, that we're, we're maybe persecuting the wrong people here. I think we all know that. I agree with that. Well, and I think the other thing to look at is that just because, you know, someone's on meth doesn't mean that their behaviors are actually criminal. They could be stemming from something else like um, having being homeless or um, suffering a trauma. And so having different resources available to those people would be much more effective than throwing them into jail um, and throwing them, you know, into lockdown facilities where then the rest of their lives are determined because when you get out and you have, um, for record, it's difficult to get funding for housing. It's difficult to get food stamps to get on your feet or to get um, any kinds of assistances that you need from the states. Uh, you can't, it's even difficult to get uh, scholarships for colleges. So when you're put away for any kind of drug right now, it's, it affects the, the long term of your life. Um, it makes it much more difficult. And I think there's much better ways to treat those people than just locking them up because not all of them are criminals. 
I, I really appreciate you pointing that out, Jennifer, and that's exactly right. You know, that, that people that get addicted to meth are, are in a similar situation as alcoholics. You know, they, they, there is some, some physical problem there, and I was uh, very fortunate that uh, at the only time I, I actually got introduced to meth, it was a time I was a family man and really serious about that, and uh, I could have got addicted to it. I, it, it. It's the most addicting thing I've ever tried in my life, and, and uh it's, it's, uh, I can see how it's, it's just so easy to fall into that. And then once you do, of course, it's just downhill. So, uh, that's, that's a really excellent point. And I shouldn't have <laughs> dismissed Beth ethics like that because, uh, I can see how I actually could have become one. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a slippery slope and, and treatment, of course, is what we need. And, uh, you know, we're not, we're not putting alcoholics in jail and, and they're actually causing a lot more damage to families, I think, than meth addicts probably. So in the long run. So, uh, just we need to balance those things and, and get our head on straight, I think. But to be clear, Jennifer, uh, you and Alex are advocating, uh, for decrim of, of plant medicines or is it all, uh, is it all, uh, drugs? So the, the movement in both Cambridge and Somerville, uh, started off being just for plant medicines, but then we felt uh, with the momentum that we had that we might as well go to just decriminalize everything. So uh, both uh, Somerville and Cambridge have chosen to to not pursue criminalizing all substances at this point. We're also looking to have Northampton do the same thing uh, where we decriminalize everything and then hopefully in Boston as well. Um, if they just go for the plant medicines, well, then that's another bonus for us. You know, that's that's one step still in the right direction for us. So, um, but it's where we saw what happened in Oregon um, and how, it, I mean, it, it passed pretty easily. It was kind of a, why, why not just throw it in there and see what happens? And um, we did and it, it works. So we're just... So are you, are you separating for future initiatives? Are you aiming to, uh, to separate the two or are you aiming to put a complete decrim as your, as your spear going forward? So currently we have two separate bills that are uh -huh. being filed. One is for decriminalizing of, and, and the cultivation of psychedelics and plant medicines. The other one is for the decriminalization of everything. Um, so there are two separate bills at this point. So anybody else have some questions you want to chime in here with? Uh, looking so at getting been, involved? You've been so successful uh, in Massachusetts. For those of us that live in more conservative states or plan to live in more conservative states or perhaps cities that are more conservative than the rest of the state, do you have any advice for us about should, should I just walk down to the city council and say, you know, I want magic mushrooms decriminalized or is there a better approach to approach conservative city council on the matter? Well, we, we found that in Somerville, at least there was one council member who was particularly enthusiastic about what we were doing. And we can't underscore uh, how much momentum has been a part of our success. When, when this one city councilor who was so, gung-ho about what we were doing, um, made himself express himself and, and let himself be known where he stands. Um, some of the, there's, there were like two or three others who were like, um, just below his level of enthusiasm who were like, yes, we're definitely voting for this. Thank you for doing this and all that. And then, you know, it became clear that the majority of a vote that was going to happen was going to go in our favor. And what's been really great about what we've passed so far 
is that um, the votes have all been um, entirely unanimous in our favor, except for, no, Northampton, it was one person uh, detracted, but um, we had the entire city council in Somerville and Cambridge uh, voting in our favor. And I do think that there's something to be said about everybody else on a council going in that direction. So I would try to find kind of do, do research on who these city councilors are and target the most seemingly liberal or open-minded of them and work with them and see if you can get them to convince others. And you really do uh, on these councils just need a majority vote for these things to pass. So um, that that's, that's the approach we've taken. I understand that in Massachusetts, um, we might have more opportunities to target these people than you would in more conservative places. But I'm sure that there, there's some of these people that exist on some of these local councils throughout the country. Um, and it's, it's worth just doing some of that particular research on seeing what they voted for in the past and seeing where their politics might lie. And this issue can be argued, I think, from multiple political perspectives. I think there's definitely a libertarian argument here. So if someone has a political ideology that leans that way, it can definitely be um, lobbied in that direction. And even a conservative, small government-minded person, I think you could try to make a convincing argument for. So there's there's quite a few angles here that I think are worth pursuing, but um, just do your research on these counselors and their voting records. And I think you'll be surprised how open a lot of people are because like Lorenzo was saying, the overwhelming majority of the population of the country believes in this. So some of these people are going to numerically fall in line with that as well. So that's, that's all I have to you say. You know, every, every city council that I've, uh, and there's only, I've only been involved to, I've maybe been to maybe six different city councils uh, to their meetings, but in, in the ones I've been to, there it seems like there's always one or two uh, hot young council people, uh, both men and women who, who obviously are looking at becoming mayor, maybe a governor or something like that. And I would, I would, I don't know what the statistics would be, but I would investigate uh, the attitudes of new young voters who are coming on the rolls, the ones that are going to be here for a long time, and what their attitudes are on this. And I start feeding this information to the council because the ones that are going to want to be elected for the next 20 or 30 years, are, those are the people that are going to be their constituents, and they need to be looking at their needs and uh, I think that uh, some of that information would be fantastic if it's in your favor. If not, just don't show it to them. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other thing I might want to add is that um, in the more conservative areas, numbers are going to be your, your best um, friend. So the more people you have that are advocating for it um, with, with all different stories, um, I feel like the, the better off you are to get a response. So if they're just getting one email or one guy walking in, they may respond. But if they have 15 different people from that area sending in letters and saying, hey, this is my story. And there's 10 different stories on, you know, at the foot of this guy that he's reading. Um, it's going to be much more effective. Um, also, a lot of the more conservative states have had higher rates of opiate uh, overdoses and alcohol uh, problems. You could also go that angle because who doesn't know somebody that hasn't struggled from either anxiety, depression, or, or some kind of substance abuse these days. Um, I know right now I'm working as a nurse and overnights we get an insane amount of alcohol uh, detoxers um, coming in 
several a night. And so it's, it's an epidemic at this point. And these people, when things open back up, are going to need help. And so um, treating people for mental health, making it more effective, but also just hitting them with the numbers and looking at states that have already started to decriminalize and shown their statistics that opioid use has gone down in states where cannabis is legal. Um, mental health is, is you know, improving in, in states where psychedelics are, have better access um, and, and where programs are more accessible to people that can get into them. So um, everything is with, they, they love their information, they love their facts. So I would, I would bring numbers and facts. And another fact, I think, coming out of this pandemic or that's in, in the pandemic is uh, PTSD. Uh, there's a lot of mental health issues that are going to be coming out of this and already are. And I think talking about MAPS uh, in a phase three study for using MDMA for psychedelics for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is uh, you know, put sort of a medical stamp of approval on psychedelics, not just medical marijuana, too. Uh, plus all the work that Harvard and, and John Hopkins has done, Charlie Grove has done at UCLA. There's a lot of, of scientific information that the younger people know about right now, but uh, isn't into the, the mainstream. But I think some of these uh, uh, issues about how uh, research itself could be uh, eased a great deal. It's very difficult to do psychedelic research because of the drug laws. Uh, you know, I, I've seen this up front and uh, up close and personal with Charlie Grove and the, the hoops he had to jump through. So uh, that, that's another angle is to uh, open up the, the avenues for medical research. And especially like in a place like Cambridge in Boston, where there is a, a lot of research going on that uh, I, I think that uh, there's, there's a constituency for that as well. Yeah. I, I forget his name, but we, our organization was just endorsed by a, a very uh, big Harvard medical doctor. So that, that was a huge push for us. And on a personal note, uh, I got involved in the psychedelic world because I was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. I was almost killed in a uh, robbery in Chicago. And for me, uh, psilocybin was instrumental in my recovery. And my motivation is this from for doing this is that it's a reciprocal thing for what these plant medicines have done for me. And um, I, I made that clear to the city council at the time too. And you can't really tell somebody who has an experience like that, that their story is not true or valid, uh, when they're hearing that testimony in a city council meeting or something like that. So there were people on the council who had their reservations, who didn't believe enough information or facts were in quite yet. And they are entitled to that opinion, but they also still ultimately voted in our favor because, it is very hard to just tell somebody that they're wrong when they're telling you something <laughs> directly affected and helped them. So, yeah, um, yeah, that that, that that you know what Jennifer was saying, how you're you're prefacing everything with their personal stories before you get into your uh, uh, presentation. I think that's that's really key to what you're doing because, like you just said, Alex, that <laughs> when when somebody tells you their story, you can't say, "Oh, you're." that you're lying. You're, you know, they're not going to, they're not going to give you a hard time about that. So you, you have them kind of on your side already, you know? Yeah. So, so what you're doing is so important. And I think, you know, when you're done with Massachusetts, you could head to a national level with your experience. And so, you know, just for some of us that are thinking about doing this, just listening in, you know, writing down notes, trying to make an outline, 
because I, I'm pretty sure that I'll try and do this in the future with, at some place that I'm living. Uh, but, you know, somehow if you could put together an outline with some bullet points that, you know, places to emphasize that have worked for you, uh, you know, it just would help those of us that right now are completely in the dark but want to try and do this. Yeah, I agree. I think our organization um, does need to create some kind of tangible framework of what we've done so far so other people can model the success we've had. Um, it is fairly straightforward what's happened, but it's this is the moment in time that the enthusiasm is there and um, you just kind of need to uh, fill in the steps for it, I think, at, at this point. The, the knowledge is out there and there's people with stories like Jennifer and myself who are very eager to, to tell them. And I think that you're also not going to have too much trouble finding those people who, who want to say them in any part of the country where it works. Uh, like Jennifer mentioned, in some of the more conservative parts of the country, that's where uh, some of these opioid epidemics have hit the worst and the hardest. And I don't think people will be closed off to hearing an alternative voice of what could make people in their family or community feel better or give a shot at trying after they've tried everything else. So uh, it's, it's, it's very important to, to combine the, our personal stories with um, the, the stats and facts and all that. You've got to com come prepared with everything. And I do think all that stuff's available to everybody in every part of the country. And again, some of the places where it seems like it's the hardest to do you might also have the most personal stories to work with as well. Yeah, I know. I've, I've seen a lot of things uh, with, with uh, you know, older people talking about, oh, I've been able to get off my medicines and stuff like that. Uh, <clears throat> but I, I haven't seen any parents and grandparents saying, you know, my grandson or granddaughter was arrested for possession of meth or opioids and went to jail and it's ruined their life. We don't hear those kind of stories enough. Uh, that, that, you know, the war on drugs is, is not just in, uh, hurting the people who get addicted to drugs and are using them the wrong way, but the families of the people that are incarcerated are, are suffering equally, I think, or not equally, but uh, almost as much in many different ways. So uh, that's, that's an expansion of the story. But uh, for every one person in, in prison, there's probably at least a half a dozen or more who are directly affected by that. Yeah, it, it's, it's a real tragedy here in Massachusetts, especially the opioid epidemic hit very hard. I personally grew up with two people who have since passed away from it. So, and, and when I went to see a doctor about what had happened to me in Chicago, I was prescribed some stuff that I really didn't need, quite frankly. And that was more of a detriment to my mental health than a benefit. And I felt very lost and frustrated because this was the person I thought I was supposed to go to, to, helped me work those things out. And in, in my opinion, just the opposite was true. And I think that a lot of people are, are over prescribed things and especially where we're coming from uh, it's, it's ravaged a lot of local communities. So I think, um, I, I, I think that's also part of what people are seeing all over the country and really want to see some fundamental changes in it is it, it it does rip apart communities as well as individuals yeah that's true the opioid epidemic in the small rural communities as i understand it has become uh, 
pretty pervasive and, and uh, you know, in a smaller community, it really does affect the whole community. In, in a big town like, like Boston, it's little pockets of communities, uh, maybe neighborhoods even get ravaged, but in a, in a town of 5,000 people, it's the whole town, you know, if it's even 50 people who are addicted. <clears throat> yeah. I had some time in uh, Missouri uh, recently, and uh, I uh, was stunned at seeing billboards uh, carrying the uh, word uh, fentanyl uh, right there, uh, urging people into uh, find a treatment for it. Um, the fellow I was visiting, uh, he grew up there, and uh, he described an interesting thing, that it, a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy that the young people in, uh, in his area, in his experience, uh, they see themselves depicted as uh, uh, running uh, clandestine meth uh, factories and sort of think, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. And uh, step right into that uh, life uh, without really uh, an awareness of uh, why or what they're doing. Um, he, he pointed to an aspect of the tragedy that I'd never uh, really looked at, um, the role of uh, your, seeking your identification as you're growing up and being presented with images that you relate to uh, as uh, uh, crackheads and meth addicts uh, doesn't work. <laughs> so, a deep thing. Yeah, it kind of goes along the lines of why D.A.R.E. failed, because they weren't really teaching kids about what drugs are, how they're used appropriately, um, what are the effects when they're used bad. What it, what it ended up doing was teaching a lot of kids what drugs are and how to use them. Um, and so I think it's like the same mentality when you're constantly being shown something, you're desensitized to how awful it can be. And in some ways, it's been glorified. Um, on yeah, some yeah. that's the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what about the approach of including uh, Native American religious practices that have incorporated psychedelic drugs or, or recently in Utah, someone has started a church because there's uh, uh, based upon psilocybin as a sacrament and that the state has such uh, strong religious freedoms, you know, that they feel like this is a legal approach. I mean, is, have you guys used anything like that also as a background for arguing legal or decriminalization? We've actually been very careful about how we approach um, with the Native Americans because what we don't want to do is take away from them. Peyote is something that is not grown easily and it's uh, native to a lot of their practices. So we had actually reached out to find out if they wanted um, peyote actually put on the bill um, and we chose not to, although we wrote all um, ethanogen plants, um, we didn't name them out because we didn't want to list peyote um, as something that we wanted people to go out and use because we didn't want it to become something difficult for the indigenous people to be able to get. Um, however, what we're working on is trying to establish um, a committee right now, like an advisory committee that um, will be comprised of law enforcement um, and, and people of all different backgrounds, but one of the, several of the people that have to be on that board are gonna be um, 
Native Americans because we want to include them in this conversation. We don't want to be taking anything more from them that has already been taken um, and want to support them in any way that we can. So we are making them um, a part of the advisory board. It's mandatory that at least uh, two of them will be represented um, when the decision to decriminalize and the bill is actually written and voted on uh, happens. Hey, Jennifer, if you didn't articulate specific medicines that qualify as entheogens, then what is the legal definition of entheogen and, and how, do, how does law enforcement know which medicines you're referring to? So um, currently we just have, I mean, it's any psychedelic plant substance. So it wouldn't include things like MDMA or uh, acid um, uh, as of yet. So it, they're just plant-derived psychedelics. Is that is that sufficient in the knowledge base of, of law enforcement? Uh, to, is that specific enough or is that too broad that they can um, have wiggle room in, in enforcement? Um, I think once, well, once the bill's written, we will definitely get more specific to it all. Um, and, and I think, I believe everything will be spelled out once, once it's all actually written and everything's decided on. Um, but honestly, the feeling that I'm getting from most law enforcement is it's really not a priority, a priority to them. So um, pushing that envelope doesn't seem like it's something in their best interest. They have much bigger fires to, to put out around here um, than catching people that are trying to heal their minds and heal their communities um, or even just people on, on possession charges because of addiction. It, it takes up a lot of their time and there's a lot of other things that are going on out there that um, are being missed because they're spending too much time fighting a losing battle, quite frankly. So anybody else have some questions that you'd like to uh, ask about this or uh, you, you, you in favor of this? <laughs> anybody not in favor of decriminalizing? <laughs> I don't think we have any of those here. Uh, I could ask a little bit of something here. Um, yeah. first of all, yeah, well, first of all, congratulations. Uh, I didn't know that you guys had, I mean, it seemed like I heard about Somerville and Cambridge, but not, um, Northampton. So that must've been fairly recently, um, uh, that that happened. Um, so, but Boston really should probably be a bit, a bit of a heavier lift to some degree. It doesn't seem like even like Marty, you're the mayor, was even all that crazy about cannabis, you know, up until, recently so um do you have any idea of like how was what what that's what that might entail you know to like um uh, to get through i guess um, do you have any sort of special sort of like strategy for boston itself um well it's definitely been more work so far I, it, we we are still like um at, at least weeks, if not months away from getting to that point with Boston. But I mean, the, the core of it is still uh, reaching out to lawmakers and, and counselors the same way that we had been with everything else. Just the, the grassroots part of it is just a bigger hill to climb ultimately. And um, Boston is actually, you know, a relatively tiny city for being, one of the well-known major cities in America. It's actually not uh, a huge um, amount of space that it takes up relative. Like we refer to greater Boston a lot of the times as like 
Somerville and Cambridge and the surrounding parts of it. And people who come from those places consider themselves as being from Boston and it's true. So, um, you know, in some respects it, it is, we're, we're approaching it in a very similar way as we have the other um, towns that we've been successful in because the people that make them up are the same. And um, it, it's very hard to point to Somerville and Cambridge and say that these places are anomalies relative to Boston. So the, the culture is similar enough that um, we, we think we're going to be successful ultimately with a very similar approach. And, Boston uh, is a lot more heavy lifting though. I, I will say that. Um, and for us right now, Marty's no longer the mayor. He, he moved up to Washington. So we have a step in Kim Jamie, who um, is a little more liberal with the cannabis industry and her focus is going to be on social and economic equity applications and um, making cannabis more socially uh economically and socially equitable for people um, to create better access. So we're hoping that we can make her an ally. Um, and like Alex said, just take the momentum that we've already got two of your, your bigger cities um, that have already told you this is what we want and the people are saying this. Um, but there are quite a few conservative people that on, on, in Boston that might be hard to con harder to convince than we've had so far. I think Carl's got his hand up there. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, I just uh, had a, a consideration that's more to the uh, whole big picture of decriminalization, and uh, that's the uh, pressure to maintain the uh, privatized uh, prison labor force uh, that uh, factors into uh, uh, the uh, uh, whole business of current state of affairs and it's a, a, a pressure that uh, I think would be uh, uh, challenging to uh, effectively uh, address uh, other than I guess by uh, raising public awareness of what the uh, situation is uh, in that regard. Um, so uh, I just want to toss that into the mix. Thank you. So, so Carl, I'm, I'm living in Texas currently and certainly that's uh, you know an important consideration. I feel like it would be almost hopeless to try and, I mean, this is a state where they used to throw you into prison for life for one joint and they can make a profit off of it. And uh, so I think there's certain states where it's just gonna be very difficult to approach. Although I'm sure 70% of the population here would like to smoke pot without you know worrying about going to prison. Uh, the way state politics work is going to be very difficult to overcome. Yeah, I agree. I'm in uh, Florida, so it's a similar uh, local situation. Uh, and then uh, I a little uh, quote. Um, if uh, your friends uh, aren't telling you uh, Aren't, aren't, aren't telling you they're getting high. Uh, you have to wonder why your friends are lying to you. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it was aimed at uh, basically our demographic. Uh, so uh, uh, I was like, yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and uh, Boston does have a reputation, a bit of a reputation as being a 
racist city that I don't think is completely undeserved if you look at the statistics of incarceration rates and things like that. And um, the war on drugs is just explicitly racist as far as our organization is concerned. And this could be also a big part of local governments um, showing that they, they've listened to what's happened this past year in terms of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and what happened with George Floyd and showing that they're listening and that this is a step that they could dramatically take to uh, change that perception, at least in Boston, but also across the country. Um, it's, it's just undeniable when you pull up those facts and statistics that uh, people of color are disproportionately arrested and incarcerated. And um, this could really be a meaningful way of showing that we acknowledge what's been going on and actively happening and part of how we're working and dealing with that. So I think things should be framed in that way as well to bring in some groups of uh, different backgrounds and motivations that might not be explicitly coming from the same place as we are, but that social equity uh, angle is something that is appealing as well for, for some different perspectives. I don't know how, of course, none of us know how this is going to play out, but, uh, you know, the, the current administration has been talking about uh, uh, programs like uh, Roosevelt had where they have uh, uh, more, you know, rebuilding the infrastructure of the country, the national parks, things like that. And I would think that uh, if they do uh, institute job programs like that, uh, the people that are, are being released from prison because of the decriminalization laws would be able to find some work somewhere too. And so there's a way to shift that labor and, and make it a little more fair where they're actually getting paid more than a dollar a day or wherever they get, you know. So uh, that, that's a really good point. The prison labor is, is huge, you know. It's a huge industry and, and private prisons. I see uh, some state just uh, voted to no, no longer have private prisons. I don't remember what one that was, but... Uh, that's a step in the right direction, I think. Damn sure. So, uh, any any other further questions or you know comments you'd like to add here tonight? I don't want to keep everybody here uh, uh, longer than they need to be. Uh, Alex, you have uh, or you and Jennifer, do you have any uh, like uh, uh, remarks? But uh, you know, what can we do to help you? You know, none of us here, I don't think, are in. Massachusetts. Uh, but in the podcast I'll put out tomorrow, uh, there'll be a lot of people from Massachusetts. Uh, how, how do they get involved in your organization? Let's say they're in Massachusetts and they want to get involved. Uh, Jennifer, do you want to answer that? Sure. So uh, some of the ways they can get involved is um, they can uh, get us on Instagram. Um, and direct message us and we will send them the information that they need to send to their city reps. Um, they can join any one of our action hours. Um, they can um, reach out to us on Facebook. Um, we also have our own website so they can go on baystaters.com or fornaturalmedicine.com and uh, contact us that way. Um, so really any way that that they feel comfortable um, getting in touch with us, but we would love to hear from anybody 
Um, and as far as how you can help us, th this is a huge help, just getting the word out there. Um, I think also getting other states listening. So wherever this is broadcast through to all these other states, people are listening. Um, and, and what they need to really hear is that you can be part of a movement and make a difference because I never thought I could. And when this kid reached out to me and said, hey, you want to do this? I was like, yeah, sure. You know, but I wasn't. I had no idea that it was going to go in the direction it did and that we were going to get done what we've already gotten done and are talking about doing the things that we're doing. Um, and I'm just one person. Alex is just one person. We live in Massachusetts and we don't have uh, friends in high places and lots of money. Like we're, we're just normal, average, everyday people. Um, and many of the people that we work with have amazing stories and have had amazing journeys. And like Alex said before, you just, you can't deny what people are saying um, when, when there's hundreds of us already that are saying this is what we did and this worked for us, that you've got to look at some, that there's some validity in it. And so just spreading the word and educating people and letting people know that it, it, it starts with one person and it can turn into something amazing. Um, but it's, it's not just for people who went to school to be activists or, you know, it, it's just anybody can join. We have all walks of life that are, are helping us right now. Um, all different career paths, all different levels of education, um, all different levels of income. And so it's, it's just, there's all of us and collectively we're getting it done. Um, and so if one person can find another person and that person can find somebody that you can do it in your state and it, it may take more effort and more time and you reach out, we'll help you with whatever we can. Um, but it is possible. I think there's two really important takeaways that, that you have brought to us here tonight. One of them, uh, and, and I've had friends that have worked in, in Normal and all of these other organizations for years, and after four or five years, they all burn out. Uh, and to hear that you guys started in October, you know, after almost a year of the pandemic, and you're doing most of your organization uh, online, this is something brand new. Anybody that's ever felt like they should volunteer for something, this might be a time to really look seriously at this. This is something that, that people making a difference, they're not just asking for money, they're asking for time and, and your, your stories. And so uh, this seems to me to be a movement that you guys are, are beginning in Massachusetts that uh, everybody here is thinking of, of somebody in their state probably that they could uh, kind of gear up about this and send this on to. So uh, you, you guys have done something pretty amazing, and, and uh, I have to applaud you for it. I think we all do. I could Thank also so ask much. about um, uh, Jennifer and Alex. Um, you know, what your particular tie to this um, this movement happens to be? Like, is it something where you've used um, psilocybin, or you've known people that uh, have been positively impacted by this, or have you been negatively impacted by the war on drugs? What's your own personal uh, tie to this um, movement? Sure. Well. Uh, Jennifer and I were actually both the two people that gave the testimony right before the Somerville City Council. So, um, you know, it, in terms of my story, I've already touched on this a little bit, but I was almost killed in a robbery in Chicago uh, coming back from living in Asia for a few years. And I had plans to go move to California and start a whole new life and get in the tech industry out there. And what happened to me really um, derailed my plans in life. I had uh, diagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder, but I didn't 
know that in the immediate aftermath at the time. And I had to eventually move back home to Massachusetts and deal with that. And I took it upon myself to um, try psilocybin after my bad experience with the medication that the doctor prescribed me uh, that I mentioned earlier. And that was a very profound and for me personally groundbreaking experience that um, changed my perspective on what happened to me. And even now to this moment, like I, I feel like I'm putting that experience, that terrible experience to use to um, have something positive come out of it. And so already I, I, um, I'm almost grateful that something so terrible happened to me because it led me down this path of other things. And also, like I, I mentioned before, I have a couple of friends over the years who have passed away from the opioid epidemic. And I, I can see firsthand that the war on drugs does not work. I, I grew up um, going to uh, the Malden Junior Police, where, where I was from. And like Jennifer was mentioning, like they, they showed me when I was like seven or eight, like here's all these drugs and what they look like and how people use them. And I didn't have a context of that before. We've approached things so badly for so long throughout my whole lifetime that I could see and demonstrably experience that um, this is just a no-brainer situation of of something for me and something I couldn't be happier to be involved in. And um, yeah, that, that's it for me. I'll let Jennifer tell her story as well. Um, so my, my involvement is pretty much all of the above. Um, I was diagnosed with chronic cluster headaches when I was eight, um, which are a very debilitating form of migraine. Um, and then when I was 12, I was diagnosed with chronic migraine as well. Um, I was on, I don't know how many treatments, how many procedures, experimental things that I've been a part of over the years. Um, I think I suffer from medical PTSD, quite frankly, from it um, with with no reprieve. I ended up addicted to opiates and heroin um, later on in life. I'd been through the rehabs and the detoxes, and the last time that I um, relapsed, um, it was really bad. And a friend of a friend reached out and said, hey, I know somebody doing Ibogaine treatments in Virginia, would you like to go? And I said, yep. I called the woman. I took my life savings, flew down to Baltimore, spent a week there, received an Ibogaine treatment, um, which uh, broke me of my, um, I wouldn't say addiction to opiates, but it it got rid of the cravings. It got rid of the withdrawal. It um, reset my brain to uh, where I was before I was in a pre-addicted state and gave me a really good head start. There was a ton of work that came after that, um, which psilocybin helped with. But during my um, experience in in Baltimore, um, the woman um, had asked me if... um, if I'd ever tried using psilocybin for my cluster headaches and my migraines, and I had said no. So when I got home, I got a hold of some psilocybin. I took uh, about four grams, and for the next six months of my life, I didn't have a headache or a migraine, which was pivotal for me. Um, that was the biggest life-changing experience I've ever had. Um, it, it is so much bigger for me than even breaking my addiction. Um, because I feel like it's part of the reason why I was addicted. So um, also in my, when I was about 17, I was arrested for two ounces of cannabis um, and I was tried as an adult and I was given an option to either spend 10 years in prison or go to this 
uh, facility in New York State for two and a half years. So I chose that. It ended up being a very abusive environment. Um, and many of us that went there have suffered uh, a lot of trauma. So psilocybin has also helped me to break free of that. Um, I was lucky enough to be able to still come home and, and start a life, but I know lots of people that were also arrested for cannabis that just um, are still stuck behind because they um, had a record and it, it has stayed with them. Um, so yeah, I, I, that's where I'm at. I'm very passionate about it. There's a lot of people out there like us um, that, that just need to know that there's a community of us that wanna help them. Um, and there is help, you're not, you're not hopeless anymore. I, I know this is not exactly on the topic of what we're talking about tonight, but Jennifer, you're the first person I've I've talked with who actually used psilocybin for cluster headaches. That uh, at Harvard, Dr. Andrew Sewell started a, a study on on cluster headaches, and I actually uh, recorded a talk he gave at Planck and Arc at Burning Man podcast. Uh, unfortunately, he died young, but uh, he was he was following up on the LSD use uh, for cluster headaches. But do you know of other people that are using psilocybin as well? Yeah, so there's actually three other people in our group that are using psilocybin for um, either cluster headaches or migraines. Um, the group Cluster Busters has actually been um, a major force in getting some of those studies um, conducted. He's been, uh, Bob Wald has been going at it for years, um, trying to let people know. That's actually where I found out. I, I did some of my research after I was told about it and, and had made the decision was because of the um, testimonies that are on their website. Um, but currently, Harvard is doing a study on both cluster headaches and migraines separately. Um, I tried to get in the study, but unfortunately, because I had already had success, I didn't qualify for it. Um, but yeah, so they are doing studies right now on the effectiveness of it. And um, it's, it's something like t 10 out of, you know, 15 people are, are having massive recoveries. I still have to use it every so often. I'm not one of those people that was a one and done, but there are plenty of people out there that use it one time and, and never have an attack ever again, um, which is, it's for anybody that suffered with any kind of pain, it, I can't tell you what a lifesaver it was to me and to them. You know, my, my mother suffered from migraines and I, I watched her suffer just, uh, it was horrible sometimes. And then I found out about people, I met one person who had cluster headaches and I learned more about cluster headaches. And apparently uh, <laughs> there's so much worse than migraines. I, I think that maybe close to half the people that cluster headaches uh, uh, at least attempt suicide. It's, it's really like one of those painful things that can happen. And uh, it's very encouraging to know that not, not, it's not just LSD, but maybe psilocybin also, not maybe, but psilocybin also works. So it's, it's a psychedelic uh, that seems to be working. Yeah, and I'm not sure what the cause is, um, but, um, it, and I was so amazed at how well it worked. Um, I, you know, I've been on so many other things with all these false promises to find something, and, and it's, it was kind of maddening at the same time, because it's like, oh, this simple thing that grows out of the ground could have saved me years and years and years of my life, because um, if somebody had told my mother years ago, that all you have to do is go, go get some cow shit and take some mushrooms off of it and feed it to your kid, and she'll be, she'll be good, um, my mother would have done that in a heartbeat. Um, you know, and, and I think it would have changed the entire course of my life, um, but I wouldn't be here. So, um, but yeah, 
for those that have suffered and continue to suffer right now getting the word out and, and making it accessible to them so it's not something that they have to worry about when they're trying to trip and get better. Oh my God, is somebody going to come bang down my door because somebody said I was in possession of these things. So, um, yeah. Have you reached out at all to Massachusetts General Hospital? I know just about a week ago, they announced that they were going to get back into the game of um, uh, research for um, uh, psychedelics. So I have to think that something like what's going on with the decrim movement may or may not be of interest to them. So um, uh, I have, have, what, what do you know about the, have you done any outreach for those guys? We haven't currently reached out to them. We're trying to figure out where we fit in the mix of that, honestly, um, because we do believe that uh the research needs to happen um, because it's not only going to give us insight to new medications, but also just the way the mind and the psyche works um, and might help make better practices for therapists, things that are, that are more effective down the road. Um, that being said, the company that the two companies that are funding um, mass general are um, not interested in really being a part of the movement to better people, but to profit. And so one of them is actually going after the state of Oregon and they're trying to patent the way they do um, treatments out there. So it's not even just trying to patent the, the, chem the chemicals, uh, the, the chemical compounds in the substance itself. They're trying to patent the, the way you do it, the light, the setting, um, so that way it'll make it difficult for practitioners that want to be able to practice this and, and, and give it to their patients um, or people without licenses that just want to do it out of their home safely. It's going to make um, that kind of access very limited um, and it's going to just push a lot of that back underground. So um, we're treading that one lightly as we figure out how do we approach this because we do want the, the research, but we don't want big pharma and big money to continue profiting. You know, I can see how your, your stories are so effective with city councils. And, and one, uh, another story that you might want to add to your mix is uh, find some researcher, uh, maybe at Harvard or wherever, uh, that has gone through the process of trying to get a psychedelic study approved. Uh, for example, Dr. Grobe, his study, his, his landmark study about psilocybin and abuse is the first, you know, got studied and published in journals and it's, it's a important study. He, I know for a fact, he spent seven years working on approval. Uh, and every three or four months, he'd have to submit a new, you know, answer question, submit. But seven years of not giving up is what he went through. All of that research could have been done six years earlier. Had, had there not been all of these war on drugs laws. And so you might want to get a scientist on your side telling his story about how difficult it is to do the research. As well. I, I'm not sure how much city council are going to listen to scientists, Lorenzo. They're, they're city council, you know. But I, I have one thing to say, and, uh, and this is just an observation on my part. You guys are very, very good representatives for your cause. When you're asked a question... There's no pregnant pause. You, you're not searching for an answer. You, you're pretty practiced at this. And I'm personally very impressed with that because that's what you have to have when you're dealing with politicians. If you give them any opening, they will jump in and rip it up. So I, I'm just kudos to you. Thank you. That's Thank quite you a very much. Yeah, and, and, and uh, 
Larry, you reminded me of, uh, you know, we, we talked a while back, I talked about one of my old sales training techniques of a politician says, yeah, but we can't decriminalize uh, meth because of all the meth addicts. And then you, you come back just like Jennifer did to me and say, well, I know how you feel. I felt the same way, but let me tell you what I found. Feel, felt, found answers so many questions <laughs> or, or puts people so, so, at, so uh, you know, disarms them that uh, you, you, if you, they know that you felt the same way at one time and then you found something, people want to find what you found sometimes and not, not every time. But, uh, and, and Larry, I agree with you about politicians except may, or, and scientists, except maybe in Boston. You would think that scientists are... Well, maybe. But we're talking about local government. These are people yeah. that their last thing, they were citizens. It's not like they're in the House of Representatives or in the state legislature or anything. They're just on the city council, which means that uh, they most likely are not extremely polished politicians. That's all I'm yeah, saying. No, that, that's a good point. You save the, the scientists for the state legislature then. Yeah. Which we do have about 12 state reps currently that, that are on board. Um, with our mission. And we do have a couple of uh, scientists, actually, that, and one of them is doing research um, in the cannabis industry. So um, she could even just talk about how difficult getting licensing and things for that is. But yeah, we do. We have a couple of doctors and, and a couple of scientists as well that, that are Good. part of our mission. Well, it sounds like like we don't have any, any real good advice to give you, but we have a lot of advice we can get from you. Go ahead, Justin. I didn't mean to interrupt you. No worries. Yeah, no worries. Um, what have you, I just interest now that you've started since October, 2020, I mean, what, have you learned anything about like psychedelics, like legally or socially or medically that you didn't know starting out, especially as it pertains to Massachusetts? I mean, like, like arrest statistics or like history type things. Um, uh, what, what has surprised you about what you've discovered, basically, about the, the substance itself, basically? Um, that's a little hard to articulate, to be honest. Um, we haven't seen – I, I think part of it's, too, this strange moment in time with uh, COVID going on, too. We, we haven't really seen arrests dramatically go down, but the police in general have been really – hands off uh culturally in the past year anyway so it's it's hard to really gauge those stats i think on another year those would be a bit more striking or dramatic uh but but this year i don't think there's been anything too crazy in the past few months to point to to say look how much this stuff has gone down but um you know it th there's been no major issues there's been no incidents i i we both we all keep track of uh, the police blotters and all that, and, and nothing's happened since decriminalizing. So uh, we have that to point to at least to be like, look, um, the world doesn't fall apart once you take this action. So um, I think that's the best answer we, we have at the moment for that. Well, in, in a few months, maybe after a few more cities that you've had presentations to uh, and you want to come back and, and talk about it some more and give us an update, uh, we'd love to have you come back here and, and uh, do that. We'd yeah, I'd again. like to. Well, let, let's plan on that. We'll, we'll stay in touch. And uh, Alex, when you think you guys have uh, some new uh, updates and news that we'd all be interested in, just let me know and we'll we'll get you in here right away. Because uh, I, I think I'm going to put this out to the whole salon because I think that uh, you're going to give a lot of ideas to people. And like I said, 
the fact that it's a brand new organization with a lot of success right off the bat uh, in the COVID pandemic uh, is significant. And I think that's going to get the attention of a lot of people. At least I hope it does, because uh, you guys have certainly done something good. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah. And keep an eye out in the news for Boston guys. Like we're, we're really hoping that'll come through because that's going to be very dramatic for the big picture of, of what we're doing. Yeah. But my, my youngest son graduated from Boston university. So uh, I, I hear Boston news from him all the time, even though he doesn't live there, he's, he's hooked on Boston. So uh, I will definitely uh, pass this along to him as well. Excellent. Great. Well, listen, go ahead, Jennifer. Do you have something you want to say? Oh, no, I was just saying great. Okay. I, I, I appreciate all the support. Well, listen, everybody, uh, I think this has been fascinating uh, for all of us, and I, I look forward to uh, keeping up. Uh, I'm going to start uh, uh, checking the news a little more closely for uh, legalization efforts in, in Boston. There's so many going on around the country that I've just sort of not paid too close attention to a lot of them. Yours is, is a, sort of a unique uh, uh, way you're doing it. So uh, we will definitely keep up and uh, keep publicizing it for you and do what we can to help. Uh, and Alex, if you'll send me any links, I got the link to the, the Bay Staters website and any other links that you want, uh, uh, I'll put them in the program notes for this. So uh, uh, everybody else, listen, uh, appreciate it. Uh, we'll be getting together Thursday morning for the European people over uh, 7.30 at night in London. But uh, until the next time we get together, Keep the old faith and stay high. <laughs> and for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>